Hi everyone, thank you for tuning in to the season two finale of the Brown Woman Health Podcast. My name is Amik and I am one of the anchors of this podcast. Join the Brown Woman Health community by following us on Instagram and Twitter. Our Instagram handles at Brown Woman Health and our Twitter handles at Brown Woman Health without the E and A. We really hope you'll join to keep up with our content, learn more about each topic, and interact with us. In today's episode, I will be talking to Dr. Preeti Saul, a developmental pediatrician based in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Not only is Dr. Saul a really awesome physician, but she's also a member of Punjabi Kids Health, which is an amazing initiative that provides accredited health information, both in English and translated into Punjabi. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Saul. Can you introduce yourself? Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Dr. Preeti Sal. I'm a developmental pediatrician in Vancouver, BC. Um, so I, I'm currently on mat leave, though, with my, my very cute five-month-old. Um, and I've been involved with Punjabi Kids Health for about the past six months, since, since its inception, uh, by Dr. Rapudamid Minhas. So he's, he's the one you see in most of the videos. Uh, and it's been so great and so gratifying to be a part of this initiative and to look at health through through um, like a Punjabi or an Indian lens, a non-Western lens. It's it's been very informative for me as well. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm just super curious, like when it comes to like translating all of that medical information into Punjabi like is it is it an easy task for you or is it hard to find the words do you have to use like a dictionary to figure out like really specific words that's a good question um it actually hasn't been too hard what's nice about Punjabi and most Punjabis understand uh, quite a bit of English so you end up, you actually end up mixing up Punjabi and English a lot. And then there's always Google Translate. And then sometimes I ask my parents, like, what's the word for this or that? And that helps as well. So simple things. But I find most things, um, like the language is important, but more so than the language, it's the cultural lens, the cultural context. Like when you're saying introduce your kids to your babies to iron rich food, you can say like a first food can be dog. And most people don't know that because, you know, you j- you only see like the iron fortified cereals or but dal's a great first baby food, right? So it's more the even more important than the language is that is that lens. And I think when people see you and you're Punjabi too, and you get like multi generational families, and you know, you get the culture, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's great that you're able to look at it through a cultural lens. I think it makes health a lot more accessible for different communities. And um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's amazing the work that you're doing. I tried to translate this, like, I found this ovarian cancer pamphlet. And for this, like, club that I'm part of, it was a Punjabi club, we had to, like, translate it into Punjabi. And, like, that was a really tough task for me. I remember I couldn't find the word for, like, ovary in Punjabi, which is, like, it's ovarian cancer. That's, like, the main word. Um, so, so I was just super curious on how that, how it is to just constantly translate a lot of these words. But it's so cool to see that it's, it's a very fluid process and a lot of the words are kind of interchangeable in a sense between yeah. the language. And we're learning too. We learn from each other. Like all the doctors who work together will watch someone's video and be like, oh, that's the word for that? Okay, I'm going to use that. <laughs> like I did one on <laughs> mental that's health a- and one of my colleagues did was talking about mental health and said mansic health. And I was like, got it, mansic health. I'm using that. <laughs> or mansic safe, yeah. you know. 
Wow, I didn't even realize that. that that's really cool. Um, and so I know you're also a developmental pediatrician. So what is developmental pediatrics? Yeah, so I love developmental pediatrics. Um, it's a newer field. So um, basically, after you do your training as a pediatrician, you can be a general pediatrician, or you can branch out into a subspecialty. So most people have heard of like pediatric cardiology, or nephrology, but developmental pediatrics focuses on kids with disabilities and kids with developmental concerns. So basically, they're not developing like a typical child. So what I do in develop in, in my field is um, I see lots of kids with uh, autism. So I do a lot of autism diagnosis, intellectual disability, um, cerebral palsy is something I see a lot as well. And then I also work with kids who have had brain injuries uh, as well. So my practice is pretty broad. Um, and, and developmental pediatrics, because it's a newer field, can look different, a little different in different places. Some people do a lot of work with ADHD and learning disabilities. Um, and, and I also do a lot of work with kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So I mostly, mostly do uh, diagnosis, um, but it's, it's a lot of fun. So when you see a kid as a developmental pediatrician, you do the physical exam and everything, but then you also play with them because that's how you assess. A child's developmental level so it's it's literally you play with them it's really fun but then you also get to know you don't just focus on the kid in one organ or one aspect of their health you ask about the family you ask about the community you ask about school you're looking at a child in the context of their community and and what i really love about the field is health is more than biology right it's yes you have cerebral palsy but how are you getting to school? How are you getting around your school? Do you have support? You know, you're looking at all of those other things. So it's it's a really fun, really fulfilling job. Yeah, that that's really good that they're able to pick up on things like that. And in general, what got you to pursue developmental pediatrics? Is that something that you knew you wanted to do um, in med school or? you know, just growing up, I guess. Either. Yeah, everyone's different. Um, it's funny, I have some colleagues who we were doing our they were residents with me in pediatrics, and they had no inclination to do developmental pediatrics. They did one rotation the year before they were supposed to finish. And they're like, this is for me. But for me, I actually the year before I started medical school, I actually I applied to medical school twice. So the first time I didn't get in, um, which was the best thing ever. <laughs> because then I got a job in my community in Surrey, where I grew up working as a child and youth care counselor for kids with disabilities. Um, so I was a one on one worker with kids with autism, kids with intellectual disability. Like I still remember every client I had, I had a client with FASD. Um, I, I would do these groups with um, um, six kids and me and another uh, clinical uh, child care counselor. And we go out into the community and just encourage this group of kids with autism to learn how to communicate with each other better, how to socialize. And so it was, it was honestly, it was such a fun job. And before that I had done like, I got that job because I had, I had a background in psychology, but I also did lots of volunteering with kids at summer camps. Um, so I always knew I loved working with kids. Um, and then, and then when I did that job, I was like, I, I like working with kids with disabilities. And then I discovered just going through a kid's file, 
like a consult letter from a developmental pediatrician describing how they diagnosed autism, what autism is, what you, I was like, this is a thing. <laughs> like there's this job called developmental pediatrician. I think this is what I want to do. So it was, it was on my radar, like day one of med school, it was on my radar, but I still explored other things because that's important for a while. I thought I'd, I'd deliver babies for, you know, um, and then I thought I'd be a general pediatrician. Um, and then throughout my pediatric residency, I loved everything, but in the end, I felt like developmental pediatrics was still the best fit for me. So here I am and I'm, I'm very happy I'm here. <laughs> But you just um, dropped the word attachment, and I think that's so integral because um, in today's episode, that that's our topic. We're going to be talking about parenting, attachment, and multi-generational trauma. So the first question is just, what is attachment? So attachment is a bond uh, that people have um, in relationships. Um, that's kind of, I think, the most basic way of saying that. Um, but when we talk about child and parent attachment, your first attachment relationship is with your primary caregiver, who's usually your mother, right? And that relationship, especially in the first two years, builds a foundation for the rest of your attachment relationships. And as an adult, your most important attachment relationship is with your partner. So kind of what you learn through your and then, and then, of course, your children, right? So what you learn through um, your own family, what your attachment is like as a child um, has influence over over the rest, the course of the rest of your life. Really. And so there's secure attachment and insecure attachment. Um, and I think the best way to describe secure attachment for for children is that they can rely on their parent. Um, and there's this program called Circle of Security that teaches people attachment. And please interrupt me any at any time if, if you want to clarify on what I'm saying. But there's this program called Circle of Security which teaches attachment. And they say the parent asks, acts as a secure base and a safe haven. So when you watch a child with their parent, you know, They'll run off and explore their environment. Um, and then when, when they'll look back at their parent, they'll run back to their parent as a safe haven when they need comfort. Um, um, and I always, I always noticed it um, at the Gurdwara or at the temple when like you're sitting there and like, and, or at the Mandar or mosque or anywhere. I'm, I'm sure everyone's noticed this. Because you're sitting there and you see this like little kid running around <laughs> or at a wedding and you're like, what's that, what's that kid doing? But then they look at their mom and then they go explore their environment and then they come back to their mom and sit in their mom's lap or their dad's lap. So that's the safe haven. And then they feel good to go explore again. So that's secure attachment. It's like, you're going to be there when I need you. You're going to be there. Uh -huh. I know that. So I can go explore and you're going to be there. So I feel safe. So that's secure attachment. And then insecure attachment, there are different types. There's like disorganized or avoidant or um, anxious. But for example, anxious is like, I'm not sure if you're going to be there. So I'm just going to hold on to you all the time because you might leave. And if you leave, I don't know if you're going to come back. 
Um, and so those are for kids who, who that initial attachment relationship um, isn't reliable, right? Where there's been neglect or there's been a parent's been absent, right? So they're, they're really clingy. And then you think as an adult of like relationships and stuff, or maybe past relationships, and you're like, huh, I wonder if that's why that person was really clingy, or am I clingy because of my, you know, you, you can see how these patterns can emerge. And then there's avoidance, who they've really learned they can't rely on their on their caregiver. So they just kind of learn to avoid it. So these kids won't run back to their parents. They won't, um, they won't, uh, um, they're not as warm towards their parents. And, and, and then they're later in their life, they often avoid relationships. But um, those, are, those are some of the base. And then disorganized is, is the most difficult one where it's just kind of a mix of all, mix of everything. So that's, that, that's kind of the, base, the basics as, as I see it. This is something I actually, I was reading this article and this is parenting and attachment was um, like a, a lot of parents will be a lot more like secure in a sense or like they'll make their children a lot more like defensive and all of that if they live in like countries that are constantly in states of warfare. And like, I thought that was very interesting to think about as well. So in general, I think that just ties into trauma. So do you know see how attachment really relates to different traumas that you have specifically even with like being children of immigrants I'm sure that comes with another set of traumas itself so um I guess what are some of those common things that you see I think I think I see it so in in terms of in terms of trauma um you know trauma affects our own attachment style right and so you can think of attachment as being transmitted. So if there was a trauma in the lives of your grandparents, say, um, you know, my grandparents were alive during partition, say a family was really affected by partition and traumatized by that. How does that affect how they raise their children? Just like you said, like raising them in an unstable environment, right? And this is where parent mental health is really important for attachment. Um, so I do, I, 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 I've done some work in maternal mental health and it's really important, you know, for those of us who have had kids, um, or are going to be moms, everyone will ask you about your mental health again and again and again and again and again. And if you have depression, they're going to say, go on medication. And you're going to be like, I can't go on medication. It'll affect my baby. And then, and then your physician and your counselors and everyone will tell you, no, the medication is safe not being on medication will affect your baby because it will affect your attachment relationship, right? Like what if you can't respond to your baby, you're too depressed or you're too anxious. So if you think of that back to that grandparent generation that may have been through partition, right? How does that affect how they raise their children and their children's attachment style? And then how does that child's attachment style affect how they raise their children? Right. And what are the coping mechanisms people adopt if they're anxious or 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 um, have mental health concerns? Because trauma in families can also lead to greater mental health concerns. Right. And then, as, as you say, immigration in itself, um, I think I have a lot more compassion for, for my parents who immigrated from Punjab now that 
you know, I'm in my 30s and I have kids now. And I'm like, damn, <laughs> this, this is hard. And you did this as an immigrant with no support, with no family here in the 80s when there was a recession. Like, oh, my God. So there's this element of, you know, and, I, and I'm still at a stage where I'm still learning a lot about trauma as well in my own profession, uh, professional career. But, but um, you know, that in itself, like that separation from your culture, um, having to come to a country, being very well educated and ha then having to drive a cab, right? What does that do to your self-esteem? What does that do to your mental health? Where you're like, well, back home, I had this. I was really respected and I, you know, I had a master's or whatever. And in, in here, it doesn't mean anything, right? Um, or you don't have the family support to help raise your kids. Um, and then for, for our parents, I mean, racism is a problem now as well. But for their generation, there was a lot more racism that they faced. Um, at least a lot more overt racism. Structural racism is still an issue for us all, but um, that overt racism, um, you know, so so how does that affect uh, attachment again? And, and, and it's not saying that our whole generation has insecure attachment, not at all, but, but for people who are more affected, that could have affected their children to an extent, right? Um, and that's why we just need to be aware of trauma and aware of mental health in our community and treat mental health so that we can have those secure attachments, right? Um, and then Indian parents and lots of immigrant parents in particular are very self-sacrificing. Everything is for their children. Everything is for their children. Um, and their family, and they forget about themselves, and they forget to take care of themselves and their mental health. Um, and then again, you know, if you don't take care of your mental health, how are you going to are you going to notice your child asking for help? Are you going to be able to be that secure base and that safe haven to provide them a secure attachment? Right? Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I think this is all like so important to realize and now I'm thinking back to like just my own parents and it's like yeah I should really just look through like how immigration and like that lack of support can make such a huge difference and you mentioned a little bit about like grandparents and partitions so I know a term that's commonly used is multi-generational trauma is that the definition of it is it looking at trauma of like different generations and how that affects um I guess us today yeah um a great, uh, a really important, I shouldn't say great, um, but a really important example of multi-generational trauma here, here in Canada and in the States, well, but here in Canada, we're talking about it a lot more, um, I think, is is our, our Indigenous and First Nations people um, and the trauma that they've been through for generations and generations. Um, and, and the, the generations that went to residential school and their attachment relationships with their parents were disrupted, right? They were just sent to school for years yeah. and years and years where they underwent terrible trauma. Um, and then they came back to their communities and didn't speak the language. And, um, you know, then you're parenting the next generation with that trauma. 
and you weren't and 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 many of these children weren't parented right they were they were institutionalized quite frankly um and so there are studies out there showing that multi-generational trauma that trauma changes your epigenetics it changes how your genome is expressed um and and so trauma is passed down psychologically but it's also passed down genetically. There's this geneticist in here in Vancouver uh, who, who does some excellent work. And I, I saw a presentation by him and I can't quote the exact study, but he was sh demonstrating this study showing um, um, an epigenetic study of trauma um, or attachment on, on, on rats. So they had these kind of four um, categories of rats. Uh, and each rat, um, so there was the group of rats who were with their mums the entire time and got lots of, in, 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 in rats, an attachment behavior is grooming. So like licking and cuddling. So they got lots and lots and lots of that. And they were all genetically the same. They were all genetically the same. And then they kind of go down the line to the rat that didn't get that kind of behavior. And you put the rats side by side and the rat that, First of all, their genetics change, their genetic expression change, the epigenetic code was different. They're not code, but their the epigenetics were different. But when you look just at their fur, the 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 rat that had all that love and grooming and time with mom had this luscious brown fur coat and was bigger, and the going down the four rats, so the rat that had the least had this shabby coat and was smaller. So, so, I mean, it's a rat study, but um, it does apply to humans too, right? And it, it's such a like profound example of, of, of um, like it was such a great visual example of how important attachment and bonding is and how detrimental neglect and trauma is, right? Um, so in humans, the same thing, we're affected psychologically, but on a genetic level, we're affected too. And, and kids who have had, um, there's lots of studies out of the U.S. on adverse childhood experiences, which are probably linked with trauma, right? You have more, more adverse childhood experiences like abuse, like um, uh, um, there's, there's a whole list of them. The more adverse child experiences a, a person has, if they're four or more, as an adult, their cardiovascular health is less. So it's not just mental health, their like physical health um, is, is, is more impaired. And that's probably, if you think about it, it's probably epigenetics, right? Because we're not, you know, and, and even mental health, like there's a genetic component to mental health as well, right? It's our neurotransmitter levels in our, in our, in our, in our brains. It's not just how we you know, how we feel is because of those neurotransmitters. Because I think sometimes people think mental health is, is kind of soft or like, you know, you're anxious because of your childhood, but that's not really biology, that's psychology, but, but it is biology, right? Because, you, because medication changes transmitter levels and you feel better, uh -huh. right? Yeah. So, yeah. No, I think that's crazy. And like the study that you mentioned, especially with the rats, like if you can like really see how that embodies in like in rats, like I'm just really surprised by that because you always think of like, at least I've always 
imagine trauma really affecting your mental health. And I know like there is like a physiological connection, but like the extent of it sometimes, like I feel like what you've explained shows that the extent of that physiological change is a lot more stark than you'd think it would be. And I think in general, trauma, like that word, it's like commonly associated with like, I think of like post-traumatic stress disorder. And I consider that with accidents and like, you know, like really like scary, like disasters and things like that. But I think even parenting, like, is not really as commonly considered in like the, I don't know, the use of trauma as a word. And like, I something else that you reminded me of is like, because you were talking about how the indigenous people had to be separated and they were in, in a separate institution. I think even in the U.S., another thing is like migrants. Um, a lot of undocumented immigrants, well, their children sometimes will be separated from the parents. And like that has been proven to be really detrimental on their health as well. Um, and like it, it's just it's so crazy that like even with policies, like we don't really consider that and like they'll still separate people from their parents. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's horrible. so it's so tragic. And like, yeah, as a pediatrician, as a developmental pediatrician, you watch that. And I think we all know, like just as people, we all know like viscerally that that is going to have a traumatic impact on that child. Right. Um, and, and, you know, you're right about trauma. We all think about PTSD because trauma is that emotional response, right? So those are kind of the big kind of disasters, but, but trauma can be chronic. So if you're in, um, uh, if you're a child in, in an emotionally abusive household, right? That's chronic trauma. Um, um, so, or if you're a family in an unstable um, political environment, like right now I'm thinking of what's happening in Afghanistan, right? Um, I was thinking that too inside of my head. Right? But yeah. You know, that, um, that's how is that going to impact? Well, it's already impacting people, but, but um, yeah, I think trauma is more complicated than than like one horrible thing happening to a person right and trauma is um a combination of what happens to you and what doesn't happen to you so like neglect you know having an absent parent um uh or having a parent who doesn't um respond to your needs um can be traumatic as well yeah, no, I'm sure there's like a huge culture shock, um, given that there's like such different parenting styles, like, for example, compared to India and like here. Um, but I, I guess another question is just, what resources do you recommend for like new parents who are like trying to figure out how to parent their children and not, you know, not pass on, I guess, that sort of trauma? Um, and to, I guess, make things a little better in a sense. Well, I think Punjabi Kids Health is a great resource. <laughs> we try to talk about those sorts of things. And my colleague, Dr. Uh, Rupudaman Minhas, who's a uh, developmental pediatrician as well, um, actually has a great video on attachment in Punjabi. Um, that's that's on our page, so on Instagram. Um, Instagram and TikTok are probably the best places to follow us, but also on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I think 
I think having a relationship with your family doctor, if you have one, or your pediatrician is, is a great place to start. Um, you know, it's hard to find culturally and language-specific um, guidance um, on, on parenting. And, and I actually struggle with, just as a parent, as a mom, when things come up and I'm reading all this parenting advice, um, and thinking about what kind of advice I would give as a pediatrician, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, the first thing you need to do is take care of your own mental health. So I think parents need to, to really understand that. And then, and then the second thing is that when you're with your child to be really present with them, to try not to be distracted to try to really stay in the moment and be present with them. Um, and then, you know, in Canada, the Caring for Kids is a great website run by the Canadian Pediatric Society that has some really helpful parent-directed um, information as well. Um, but, you know, there aren't a lot of great... It's hard because especially culturally specific parenting it's, it's hard. There's not really a lot out there. It's very westernized. Yeah. And, and, and like one of the last questions I have for you is for those of us who might be, um, who, who might have realized like uh, I might have had like an insecure, I have an insecure attachment style. How, what are ways or what are the steps to take to kind of undo that? I, th I think if you're, you know, feeling that way to see a therapist or a counselor who specializes in attachment um, is important. Um, I mean, the first thing is always like take care of your own mental health, right? Um, and, and I think, um, you know, being a person of color in the West, being a child of immigrants, you know, depending on your socioeconomic status, like there's a lot of, um, there is some oppression faced, right? By, 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 um, by brown women, right? Um, being a woman in a patriarchal culture. So you have the Indian patriarchy and the Western patriarchy and then white feminism brings down your neck and you're like, ah. So, uh -huh. you know, and then, and then when looking for a therapist, I would say, and part of this is just based on, you know, um, some life experience too, is you want someone who understands the cultural context, right? Because I remember going to a therapist when I was, when I was younger, like in my twenties, and then you have to explain your culture. And then, and then you get someone who's like, isn't, isn't Indian culture very patriarchal? Like, aren't and you're just like, oh, well, this is a waste of time, right? So, and so being able to say, to say no, like this isn't a good fit, and finding someone who works with people of color who has an anti-oppression lens, who you know, because all therapy is therapy can also be not be very helpful or even be harmful if you go to the wrong person, right? So to be critical of that, but. Um, you know, to work, to recognizing your, um, any issues with attachment that you may have is kind of, is the first step. And then recognizing, being aware of that in relationships and then working forward and getting the mental health supports you need 
is is probably the way to go. This is like far from the realm of being a pediatrician, but <laughs> I think I think that's the way to go. Uh, yeah. No, I just I felt like that was like the important question to ask because we we're talking so much about like multi generational trauma, and I was like, yeah, then, like of course. And I think that's when the trauma persists is when adults don't get mental health support, right? Because trauma affects your mental health. You know, we might go treat our high blood pressure and our diabetes and our high cholesterol, but are we treating our anxiety or depression or, right? Are we treating those things? Um, And it's, and then just being aware of your own attachment, especially before you have kids if you can or whenever in your life, but um, that's, that's important as well. Right. But it's hard to diagnose ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. But if you have concerns, see a qualified therapist with a culturally safe lens. (laughs) And then my like last question, because you are a developmental pediatrician um, is like when it comes to seeing like, you know, little kids, um, are you able, is it easy to identify like the different types of attachment styles and like a visit? Um, and like when you, when you notice some sort of like insecure attachment style is, is a therapist, is that like your first step to like recommending, um, a, a parent is to go see a therapist or do you recommend the parents see some sort of help in that sense? I don't know if that I question think, makes sense. <laughs> uh, no, no, your question does make sense. So attachment style, I mean, we uh, is actually a lot, it's, it's tricky to assess. It, you often don't get it in one visit. You can see, you can totally see a secure attachment in a little kid, though, because you see that, I'm going to play with you, then I'm going to run away, then I'm going to play with you, then I'm going to play with you. You know, you see the safe haven and the secure base. And I'll often say that to parents. I'll say, like, look at this beautiful attachment you have with your child. Because often kids with, particularly with autism, aren't making eye contact with you, aren't very huggy, aren't very, you know, but it's like, I know they're not expressing their emotions in a traditional way, but look how much, look like you are their anchor. So I often like reassure parents when I see that. Um, and, And again, you know, when I see a parent who I think is struggling, with anxiety or depression or struggling with their child's diagnosis, I do talk to them about getting mental health support. I very, you know, quickly go to, you know, and you need to take care of yourself. And I would recommend that you get some mental health support because you can also, because I can't evaluate the full attachment relationship, but you can start to see when a, a mom or a dad has mental health concerns and then the child has developmental concerns. So that's, it's even more challenging to parent that child, right? Um, and then, and then, so you can see how that can quickly um, become a concerning situation. So, so yeah, I, I, I do, I do definitely look out for that and, and then recommend, but, but I'm a, I'm a, I diagnose um, the conditions in kids. So unfortunately, I don't always, sometimes I get to see the parents back again and again a few times, but usually, you know, I only see them a couple of times. Um, but then I'll, I'll recommend they see their family doc and their pediatrician and write the family doc a letter and things like that. But um, it's, it's hard because mental health support is hard to access. There are long wait lists. It's not always covered fully by extended health. 
um, or insurance. Like it is, but not to the extent it should be, in my opinion. Um, so it can be, it, it can be hard. And then, you know, the last thing that people can always do for themselves is um, their own like mindfulness or spiritual or meditative practice, which has shown to be scientifically to be quite healing um, and helps people with emotional regulation, with anxiety, with depression. Um, and that's something you can do yourself. There's lots of apps out there. There's lots of resources out there. Um, there's you know, a mindfulness meditation group in every community. Um, and that's what a lot, I see a lot of psychiatrists recommending that too now. Um, and starting to introduce that to kids, um, uh, because that is a very, very healthy way of coping, uh, with, with, um, with difficult emotions. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of us. I think it's so I, cool to get kind of a lens on what you do, um, as your job as a developmental pediatrician, but also just the general context of multi-generational trauma, I think is so applicable, um, to, like the listeners of this podcast is, and also me just listening to all of us, I think um, I am able to be more cognizant of that, all this stuff because I never really realized how it all ties into attachment and parenting and um, how that like developmentally um, affects you. Um, but thank you so much for being on our podcast, Dr. Saul. Um, and Thank you for sharing all of this valuable information. Make sure to follow Dr. Sal at Dr. Preeti Sal, D-R-P-R-E-E-T-Y-S-A-L-H on Instagram, as well as Punjabi Kids Health. Um, both their pages are amazing and they have so much really helpful information on parenting. And thank you for tuning in to the Brown Woman Health Podcast. It was so great to host season two and we're so excited for season three as well. See you soon.